0: Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Bay Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Tariq Ali in conversation with Carrie O'Brien, recorded live at the 2015 Byron Bay Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronbaywritersfestival.com.au. So, uh, since none of you will know who our guest is here today, I'll have to tell you. Uh, The cliche is lion of the left. Uh, Nobody could accuse this man of being inconsistent. Uh, For a good 50 years, he's been uh, a leading intellectual of the left, and uh, I guess he would say sadly uh, for much of that time it's been a losing argument. But uh, this is uh, Tariq Ali, Uh, I'll give you the formal introduction from one of his books. You can't do better than that. He's a writer and filmmaker, he's written more than a dozen books on world history and politics. Uh, And uh, the novels, of course, The Islam uh, Quintet, The Clash of Fundamentalisms, The Obama Syndrome, as well as scripts for the stage and screen. He's an editor of The New Left Review, lives in London. His most recent book, The Extreme Centre. Would you please give Tariq Ali a warm welcome? (laughs) Tariq, uh, you... um You arrived in London uh, at an extraordinarily exciting time, really, uh, in the history of civilization, which is a nice sweeping statement, but I think it's true. It was a very exciting time. It was a time of enormous change. There were a number of revolutions in the air, not least the feminist revolution. Uh, Now, you saw all of that close up. You were a part of it. Uh, The legend is that you are are the street fighting man of uh, of uh, the Rolling Stones fame. Um, but that—that uh, that is not your leading claim to fame. What I want to ask you to start with is this. Uh, you've seen a lot of history since then. Uh, you would have seen it, I imagine, as a time of great hope and excitement. How do you look at the 50 years since and how do you feel now in terms of that hope?
1: Well, I never believed that history was a linear progression to something better. I I was never one of those who believed that, Uh, that I I always was of the view that in order for history to change, to be reshaped, it needed active people uh, and people who didn't just sit down and accept what was being handed out to them. So of course things have changed considerably And I think the main reason for that, even though many of us on the left had no time for the regimes that existed in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, but the important thing about those regimes was that they kept capitalism out of their lands for nearly 60, 70 years. And that was a constant uh, restraint that capital and its rulers and ideologues knew that there was a large part of the world uh, where they couldn't enter and which had to be defeated. And in order for it to be defeated, capitalism itself had to push through reforms, which social democratic governments did as an alternative to what existed in Russia, China, Eastern Europe. But in the 90s, there was an implosion in Russia, in the Soviet Union as it was, in Eastern Europe. And the Chinese Communist Party decided to go capitalist. And it was easy to do because they didn't have to change initials. (laughs) (coughs) Uh, (coughs) And once China went capitalist, the world and the axis of the world shifted. And suddenly we were told there was no alternative at all. This was the only alternative that we had to uh, live under. And once that happened, capitalism then removed all its sort of human or kindly features, uh, which was in order to have, uh, to to compete with the others, they they also would have a heavily state-funded educational system, a heavily state-funded health system, uh, railways, public transport, all that. That went when the old enemy was destroyed, or it wasn't destroyed, imploded. And so we have seen a clawing back of all the gains that the labor movements, social democratic parties, and others had thought were unchangeable. And it is this shift from what was to what is not yet complete, but is going to be that has created this awkward period of transition in which we all live and in which people hope, our rulers hope, that our memories die, that we don't remember anything at all. If you look largely how television is used now compared to the 50s, 60s, 70s, it is effectively an assault on memory. They don't want you to remember what you do remember <clears throat> of how it used to be. And so it's difficult fighting, fighting back uh, 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 in these times, but you know, people do it.
0: But h- how much of that is a conspiracy and how much is just a kind of osmosis? I mean, um, y- your modern television network is primarily interested in profit and in the process of making their profits, they're in pursuit of ratings and they have become increasingly mindless in their content I would think that's not part of a conspiracy. That's just a kind of a dumbing down as the cheapest way possible to improve
1: their bottom lines. Well, I'm not a sort of conspiracist at all, Kerry, Uh, but you just, when you see what's happened, if we're talking about the media, to the growing monopolisation of the private media networks and then the state networks like the BBC, ABC here, CBC in Canada that were modelled on the BBC... effectively trying to beat off privatization by behaving more and more like the privatized networks. That's what's going on, and that is because of the weight of the market and of capital on public institutions. Mm. Uh, And this is something we see in many parts of the world. I mean, Australia, for me, I've been coming here since uh, 1970, uh, off and on. The changes, I mean, it, the, if you like it, and I don't even mean it disparagingly, but just objectively, the Americanization of Australia hmm. is there to well, see. Well, that's been
0: a global phenomenon, really. Yeah.
1: And, in, and the same in Britain, by the way. It's hmm. no different. So <clears throat> these things that are happening in other parts of the world occasionally create a rebellious mood. But in the Anglo-Saxon world, so-called, uh, it's it's... People have resisted and fought back. Some still do. I mean, at the moment, we have in Britain someone trying to become leader of the Labour Party, who is very reminiscent of Gough Whitlam, uh, and is getting more and more support Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, because his ideas haven't been heard. He comes up with things which for old social democrats used to be bread and butter, like public transport should be publicly owned. And large numbers of kids at his talk say, God, what an original idea. (laughs) We've never heard that before. That's what I mean. So when these ideas come across, there is support for them. But it's that very few politicians, uh, I mean, politics has sort of become completely uh, constrained. And when you get out of this, uh, people are surprised and young people get interested.
0: Tell me about the failure of the left broadly in all of this. I mean, we've seen what's happened to the Labour Party in Britain. We've seen what's happened to the Labour Party here. Um, those, those modern leaders of the Labor Party would say that it was a necessary transition that it had to make in a modern age. Uh, others might say that the Labor Party's support base collapsed with the failure of trade union leaders to actually continue to be relevant for young workers. Uh, but, but where is the failure? It's not just that capital, capitalism has been such a roaring success, is it? No. Uh, why did the left, why, why... Has the broad thrust of the left failed so comprehensively since the collapse of the so, of, of, uh,
1: of the Berlin Wall? I think there was a great deal of demoralisation, uh, <clears throat> even for people who were very critical of the Soviet Union and that whole system. Uh, they felt its departure because its existence had given them some cover in the capitalist world. As long as that system existed, capitalism had to do something to appease and deal with the real problems confronted by its citizens. Once that other system collapsed, they had no constraints on them at all, and the left was very demoralized, really, and systematically rooted out in country after country. I mean, you had it here first with the way in which Gough Whitlam, who basically defended Australian sovereignty, if you look back at it, wanted Australia to be an independent country with its own policies. The way a coup was organized, a constitutional coup d'etat was organized in was quite shocking. So it happened here first, but it has been happening now in different parts, in different parts of Europe, uh, which is why the difference between the two parties uh, in most parts of the world, between the left center and the right center is minimal it's on style it's on how they appear in australia now if you look at politics i mean i don't know i can't even remember the name of your labor party leader but but what i do but what i do know it's, it's, it's is something to, that, do Some, something to do with size sorry
0: something to do with
1: size but he i mean it's it's the the other side whereas howard was a sort of clever operator. This guy's imbecilical. And, and, that's, and that's what you have. So because he's imbecilical, people say, oh, well, anyone's better than him, which is true on some levels, uh, including people within his own party. I mean, Turnbull would be a cleverer leader for the conservatives here. But Because of that, then people feel there's a real difference. Whereas when they come to power, on all the fundamentals, foreign policy, domestic policy, how to deal with the large corporations, there is fundamentally no difference between them. And that is what I call the extreme center, which rules our world today. And occasionally we have fun and games as when in Britain what they did Assuming that the population was as right-wing as they were, the leaders of the Labour Party, in order to diminish the role of the trades union said, the trade unions can't vote as a bloc, fine. You have to vote as individual members, fine. And anyone who's voted for the Labour Party or is a supporter but not a member can pay three pounds and vote in our elections. Well, large numbers of people said, okay and they're voting for Jeremy Corbyn, 66-year-old, totally uncharismatic in terms of media language, but incredibly popular with young people, because he's not in the mold of your usual politicians. He says things outside the cage, and this is proving very popular. I don't know whether he'll win. I hope he does, because what you will then see is a big split in the Parliamentary Labour Party, Who? can't bear the thought that this sort of bearded guy could be their leader. And his politics are radical on most issues. So, you know, these things can happen, so there's a lot to play for.
0: But, uh, I mean, what you've described, the, the odds of him actually retaining the leadership, even if he gets there,
1: would be pretty slim, wouldn't they? If Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party... I think that the parliamentary party, which is packed with Blairites and time servers and uh, careerists of every sort, you know, most of them uh, join Blair's Labour Party to make money. It's not a secret. If you, if you, in my book, the extreme centre, I have a section called the trough. I I believe we have one here. In, in that, I outline, and you know, the whole book would have been the trough, but I didn't want to sort of go over the top. So <laughs> I just outlined the amount of money Labour politicians made when they were in office and when they left office. And top of the list is Tony Blair, really on top of the list. a guy who used to complain when he became Prime Minister, always, I don't have m- enough money, look at these millionaires, is now a multi-multi. And we know where the money's coming from. It's not a big secret. So politics, the symbiosis between politics and money, has become very deep and very profound. It's the Americanization of politics that we are seeing all over Europe and in Australia and New Zealand. And the pattern is virtually the same.
0: Well, you you talked about the Greeks as a, a small sign of hope. For the left, but uh, but they've sort of fallen in on themselves again, haven't they? Sorry, where? The Greeks. The left. The left in The Greece. left
1: is weak. I mean, the place where the left became very strong and still is is South America, uh, where neoliberalism and that form of economics had been practiced first. It was the big laboratory was South America, Argentina, Chile, Venezuela, Bolivia, and that's where the chain broke. And the United States is still not recovered from that because four or five countries have broken from neoliberalism. And what they are actually doing is a government, they're producing elected governments with huge social movements behind them, and what are they doing? What is this that frightens people so much in the West? They are pushing through policies, which are effectively left social democratic policies, mm-hmm. housing, land grants, all this.
0: But they also, uh, I mean, the test is going to be over time, isn't it? And the yeah. test in the end will be an economic one, Yeah. in a way more than a social one. Yeah. Because without successful uh, a successful economic system, uh, the rest just collapses, doesn't
1: it? Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And, I mean, Harvies <coughs> did have the
0: oil yeah. uh, behind him, and uh, and that's a finite resource. I mean, you can't build socialism on oil, can you, no. alone?
1: No, but it helps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just imagine if Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran and Iraq were countries ruled by left-wing governments. You know, the, the, it would help a great deal. And what is very interesting, um, which is that once when the late Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela, visited the Arab world for some OPEC conference, he was interviewed on Al-Jazeera television. And they interviewed him for one hour, and as is the custom in that part of the world, they put a vo- Arab voiceover on you, they don't believe in subtitles. So they had a very wonderful actor doing it, and Chavez's arguments were very solid. And he explained what the oil money had been used for in Venezuela uh, to help the poor, to build public housing, to create more universities, to make higher education completely uh, free, etc., etc. And the Al Jazeera head, because I was there in Qatar soon after that, I say, he said, you have never seen it. He said, it broke all our audience viewing figures. Millions of people watched it. And we had to hire in special people to answer the emails, because we had millions of emails. And I said, well, what were they about? They said they asked one question. When can the Arab world have a Chavez? You know, they said, that's the question they asked. And we had to you know, reply saying, well, we're different, etc., etc." et cetera. Et cetera. But, but the
0: implication of what you're saying is that out there across the world, there is this hunger. There is this hunger for what you would describe as genuine democratic government.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, but what is happening with that? It, <coughs> it's, uh, I mean, we saw what happened with the Arab Spring,
1: didn't we? <clears throat> the Arab Spring was crushed very brutally in Egypt. Uh, And lots of uh, excuses were made, but it was crushed with the backing of the Western powers who deal with this brutal military dictator now as if nothing had happened. So we live in a world of double standards. There are no norms at all. Uh, Yeltsin in Russia is wonderful. Putin is awful. Now, I, too, think Putin is awful, but I do have some other reasons for him being awful. And I thought Yeltsin was awful too, by the way. But anyone who doesn't collaborate with the West becomes awful. That's what goes on with Russia. And when Putin asserts his sovereignty and says, we have interests which don't always coincide with yours. And that's when he becomes an enemy again. And this fight for sovereignty is an extremely important one. And in my opinion, all the Arab countries that have been systematically destroyed, Iraq first destroyed, now being dismantled, Syria currently going through the same thing, is because they want to destroy any country in that region which exercises its own sovereignty. Small countries are easily controlled. In Britain, it's interesting what's happened, actually, because for the first time ever, the Scottish National Party won a huge majority, and I was very engaged in that campaign. And people in England would say, but why are you involved? I said, because it's an internationalist campaign. The SNP is not your crazy nationalist party. It's effectively a social democratic party doing what Labour has stopped doing. <clears throat> and then you have, they are elected, they take most of the seats in Scotland. And the result of that is that their youngest member is a Scottish woman, Mary Black. Check her out on your websites. And this maiden speech she made in the House of Commons, one of the most wonderful and moving speeches once heard in years. And she says, I was in a socialist family. We used to regard the SNP as the Scottish nose pickers. <laughs> <laughs> she said that. and she said, And she said, but I joined them because Labour had sold us out. And so we want an independent Scotland because we want it to be better. And then she you know, looked in the direction of the Tory benches and said, and by the way, I'm the only 20-year-old in this country who has the privilege of living in subsidized housing, the only one because of conservative policies. And the reason is because I'm an MP. But anyway, thanks a lot. So this sort of so, sort of speech we have not heard in the house of commons since bernadette devlin was elected from ireland a long time ago so there is a shift taking place and by the way if uh, scotland goes independent which it might you will then have a chance to change your flag too if you want <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now there's a debate that went in and out of fashion very quickly here. <laughs> um, the great the, the great problem that the left has is that it can point to so little success over the years. Isn't that right? I mean the great the great socialist experiments were were um, the Soviet Union and China, mm. and we've seen what's happened in both cases. Mm-hmm. Um, to one degree or another, there have been governments in history that have called themselves socialist, but there, there is not a great string of success stories, is there? No. Now, why is that?
1: I think the reason for that is this, the sort of basic reason, is that these revolutions took place in countries which were economically extremely backward both China, which was effectively a peasant country, and Russia under the Tsars, was a very backward peasant country. And so the revolutions were made in the name of a class which barely existed, the working class, because that's what Marx had laid down, that this was the class that would make the revolution. But in all those countries where where the working class was a majority or approaching... A majority revolutions didn't happen. I mean, the Russian leaders, Lenin, Trotsky, and etc., had no illusions about this. They said, We're living on borrowed time, and unless the Germans make a socialist revolution, we're sunk. And, you know, they, they carried on for 70 years, but they knew that if they were just isolated to countries like themselves, they wouldn't last. I think that was the basic reason. Secondly, after they developed, because without economic development, Russia couldn't have fought the German armies to a standstill and then defeated them. And by the way, that's another memory that is being forgotten, that Russia, actually, the Soviet Union actually participated in the Second World War. You know, people, young people often don't know that the two key battles of the Second World War were Stalingrad and Kursk, where the, the sort of core of the German fighting machine was destroyed. After that, it was impossible for them to win the war. This couldn't have been done by an economically backward country. And many Russian people hope that after the war, after what they've been through, the purges, the destructions, the killings, they would be allowed to breathe and for that to happen you needed accountability and you needed a form of democracy and that its leaders didn't offer them till it was too late. But on that also I would say that socialism in whatever shape or form has been tried once and it's failed. Capitalism has failed 30 times. And no one ever says, but you failed. And the last time it failed was 2008, where the state, which had been told, you can't do anything. Now, we don't need the state. The state can't help the poor. The state can't do this. The state can't do that. But when the system was collapsing, the r- rulers of the country fell on their knees and said, state, we need your help. And trillions of dollars were spent to bail out these corrupt and crooked banks. Now I'm sure that I'm sure that
0: people all over the world, in one sense, would have liked to have seen nothing more than Barack Obama come in and say to the banks, "Well, you caused it; you deal with it." Uh, but I suspect Obama, as much as anybody who would have been involved in that uh, process, was just fundamentally shit scared about the alternative, because nobody, nobody would have been in a position to know with any certainty, how the cards would fall, what the impact would be on working Americans, on working Europeans. And you might say, well, it couldn't have been any worse than what did happen. Well, perhaps, yes, it could have.
1: Well, I think that given that the system had collapsed and everyone could see it, it wasn't a secret. Australia didn't collapse in that sense because you had You know, strong trading links with the Far East were China and Japan, which saved you. But in Europe, at one point, it did feel as if everything was going to go under. And uh, also in the United States. Now Obama or most of the American ruling class did two things. One they said the banks have to be saved, we can't let Wall Street go under. Uh, There were rational capitalist reasons for this, but there were also other reasons, is that Wall Street funds both political parties. Wall Street gave Obama more money than it gave his uh, Republican opponent. Wall Street gave Obama more money than it gave to Hillary Clinton, his rival in the Democratic Party. So he couldn't then turn on these people who'd been backing him and pouring funds in and say, I'm going to punish you. Had he done so, his popularity would have gone through the ceiling because people, ordinary Americans, were really scared and fed up. They were. They were prepared for radical change. He couldn't do it because it's very difficult for a member, a leader of either of these two parties uh, to do it, but he did something which most Europeans didn't. He did provide a stimulus, i.e. state intervention, to help, for instance, the car industry from going under. Which neoliberal rule permits that these days? State intervention is banned by the European Union in order to save industries. So he did do that, but he didn't go beyond that because of his inherent weaknesses and in the weaknesses of the American ruling system as such. But most economists, including very mainstream economists like Krugman, and Joe Stiglitz and others are saying that this is going to happen again, that all we've done is put sticking plaster on the system and the blood you can still see underneath the sticking plaster, and it's going to blow again because nothing fundamental has been done. I mean, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize-winning American economist, said 2008 is like the Berlin Wall for capitalism. And it, we have to find an alternative. And I met him recently in London. I said, Joe, well, you know, they managed to survive. He said, yes, yes, they have. They're very short-sighted. Capitalism is very short-sighted. We'll see for how long, you know. So uh, it's, it's not over by any means, but the point is this. Unless there's an alternative to it, it will carry on surviving.
0: The moment I lost interest in uh, Barack Obama, and and perhaps not quite as dramatically as that, uh, but the moment I, my scepticism grew into a very large balloon indeed was was when, during his first election campaign, he promised that he was going to change the culture in Washington. And I knew that was bullshit. Because I think, I mean, short of uh, blowing that capital up and starting again, uh, to me, Washington is too far gone. And countries like Australia, or if you want to reduce it to Canberra, um, are well down a similar road. And, and it's the road where uh, where the power of money speaks far louder than any individual's vote. That's it's the... entrenched. Yeah. And And at the heart of it is the funding that goes with political parties running campaigns to win and keep power. And there does not seem to be any progress, any genuine reform that is attacking that root cause.
1: Uh, On the contrary, laws are being passed which make it easier to strengthen this symbiosis between money and politics. And uh, large corporations use political parties to do their bidding, and they do it quite happily. I mean, when uh, party conferences take place in most parts of the Western world, the People agitating are the lobbyists from all these corporations, talking to politicians, buying them off, paying them. I mean, you know, if you look at one big contradiction that Obama had in his power and with popular support, the possibility of creating a national health service, free at the point of production, free at the point of entry for everyone. He turned his back on that. Even Nixon had had a more progressive idea of how to create a health service. But Obama couldn't break from the insurance, health insurance companies and the pharmaceuticals. So the people who drafted the bill, which was passed by Congress and the Senate, were lawyers for the big insurance company.
0: It wasn't that more an admission on Obama's part that the practical realities of congressional politics were that he was not going to get uh, a more desirable bill through the Congress.
1: I think this, you know, this is disputed, Kerry, because I think at the height of his popularity, when he was elected, the first hundred days, had he barnstormed the country and given his public, you know, talks on television, the country was ready for change on this particular front. The corporations weren't, and their and their tame news agents uh, in the media weren't, but i think the country was and now you have the irony that america spends united states spends more on its health service than any european country or australia with better systems or declining but still better systems because they have to pay so much money uh, and give so much money to the pharmaceuticals the insurance companies etc it's irrational And it's because the corporations are so dominant now in American politics and increasingly becoming uh, dominant here. All these new treaties and bills that are being proposed are intended to even toughen up corporate hold of politics. So you can't pass any laws which actually challenge the freedom of a corporation, despite the fact that these powers corporations have challenged the freedom of most citizens. Uh, You've talked...
0: You've talked about us being in the twilight of democracy, which implies that you've kind of given up, in a way.
1: I haven't given up. Well,
0: up, but that you're talking about something that's beyond your control. Yeah, you mean, well, it, this is... Is this, it, a new, is this
1: an irreversible moment, it's, this it's twilight? democracy in the form in which it's existed, where, for instance, let's just, you know, if we're talking about democracy, democracy proper... We didn't have till after the First World War, whose centenary is currently being celebrated, because half the population, i.e., women, weren't allowed to vote. So it was a very distorted, truncated suffrage uh, that existed with only men allowed to vote. And then in some countries, there were property qualifications before you were allowed to vote. So it's been a tormented path. But so for a hundred years, we've had democracy in the sense of one person, one vote. But over the last 20 years, there's been a process in which all alternatives within mainstream democratic process are being squeezed out. And you know, what is the difference between Thatcher and Blair? If you ask people this, they say Blair was in some ways worse because we had no illusions in Thatcher. But he promised certain things, and he never promised us to go into every war that the Americans wanted. Uh, and Blair's successors, by and large, have not been able to break from that. So, but it's not just Britain. I talk about Britain because you know it better, but France is virtually the same. Germany has been the same since the Second World War where they've had coalition governments with social Democrats and Christian Democrats in the same bed whenever there's a bit of a crisis, as they are today. So increasingly young people, and they're the people of the future, the young, the present generations, are not interested in the electoral process at all. I mean, the number of young people between the ages of 18 and 26 voting in every single country, with the partial exception of the United States during the Obama campaign, diving down, because they see it changes nothing. There's a
0: a survey that's conducted by a think tank in this country called the Lowy Institute each year, and uh, one of the questions on that survey is uh, something like, do you support democracy? Uh, Do you believe in democracy? And uh, a very sizable minority of young
1: people essentially say no. If they're the hope of the future. Well, this is what the system has come to. This is why I talk about the twilight of democracy, because it's not us greyheads who need to be convinced. It's the new generations, and they are not convinced not because of what we say, but because of their own experiences. I mean, you know, in many countries now, it's impossible for an average young person to get a university education without paying a fee, for instance, mm. or for paying partially for their health system. So even in those areas that were once considered sacrosanct in terms of public uh, ownership, like health, education, transport, uh, even. Um, Capital is encroaching, privatizations are the order of the day, and when people attack them, you're told you're dinosaurs, and young people haven't even heard the arguments, unless they happen to live in a country where something's going on. So... It's the young that have to be convinced that democracy is worthwhile, but when they see that it makes no difference who you elect, both gangs that rule are corrupt and do absolutely nothing for the majority of people, working or not, unemployment rising, who can blame them for giving up?
0: When you talk about uh, uh, the extreme centre, and and you particularly direct a lot of your, your argument to the Blair era, and what happened to Labour in that time. Well, of course, what happened there, in a sense, had already happened here, and this was the Hawke-Keating years. Now, I've got a head full of this stuff because I've been working on material related to it, and I know what Keating's arguments are about this, Keating, and there's several. One, that command economies do not work, uh, that that a smart Labour Party should be the relevant party uh, for the people of Australia and for the working people of Australia, but part of the way it does that successfully is to build a bridge to business. Uh, That it provides the right regulatory framework, a proper framework for competition. That competition is the friend of labour and of working people, rather than monopoly, duopoly, oligopoly. Uh, And that he, he would say that's what he set about doing. They had an accord, they had a social accord with a very active trade union uh, movement, probably the single most supported uh, proportionately trade union movement in the world, something, something like 65 or 67% membership of the workforce. Now they did that together uh, with the representatives of workers uh, which in the short term held wages down, but in the longer term he would argue through productivity, through the capitalist system, uh there was for something like 10 14 years increases in real wages the like of which this country and many other countries had never seen before so so what is wrong with that if the if the theory behind what Keating did is matched by 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 uh, practice in other words if it's if it is seen to work
1: what is wrong with it? <coughs> Well, what is wrong with it is that, effectively, uh, it gives enormous power to capital and its corporations, and ultimately, these corporations are not satisfied at all unless they are completely in charge, which is the case now in large parts of the world. Uh, I mean, Julia Gillard, when she tried to challenge the power of one corporation, was slapped down very hard and retreated. So... Uh, this is this is now unchallengeable.
0: One wonders whether another leader might not have done that better.
1: Well, yeah, but I think it's you know we, uh, whether Australia. I mean, that will... that
0: might simply be a comment on a particular
1: leader rather than on the strength of the corporation. Well, I think not actually, because I think if you look at.
2: Uh...
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> I think if you if you look at Kevin Rudd or any of the other people in contention, none of them, whether they were intelligent or not, is a separate point, or whether they spoke Mandarin or not, is a separate point. <laughs> but none of them uh, effectively were or had a vision, a vision to challenge the the overweening power of the corporation. The last Australian prime minister who did was Gough Whitlam, uh, and if is the Australian Labor Party today capable of producing another Whitlam? Well, we live in hope, (laughs) but I don't think they do. And it's not just Australia. As I point in in the extreme center, I point out that this is a general pattern now in in more or less in world politics. Same to a certain extent in India one of the largest countries. China, of course, doesn't bother with having another party, though they could easily. (laughs) Uh, Which, I mean, I've often said to Chinese friends, you know, for God's sake, just follow the American system, create another party. They said, but why bother? And you know oh, yeah. I've spoken to Texan billionaires who look at China with great admiration saying you know one party no trade unions I mean fantastic why the <laughs> hell not so <clears throat> this is this is the world we this is the world we live in and the second point on this Kerry is this that I do not believe that the basic human needs of our civilization of our world in which we live should be subjected to profit health, education, housing, travel, these are the basic needs of people. They should not become part of the capitalist system. And it's difficult to say that today, you know? It I mean, seemed, some easy. Of us it do, seemed easy when you said it. Sure, I can say it, but you know, and we are saying it at a... Literature festival and increasingly festivals like this are happening all over the world because they're the amongst the few areas of really free space left Which is why more and more people come to hear arguments and debates Which they can no longer hear on the BBC or the ABC or the CBC or any of the other channels
0: uh, When you talked about single-party rule you reminded me of an interview I did with Lee Kuan Yew once And when I said to him, when do you think Singapore will be ready for democracy? He said, we already are a democracy. He said, said, we have a parliament. Uh, We have an opposition. I said, uh, how many do you have in the parliament and the opposition? He said, one. (laughs) I said, where is he? He said, in prison.
1: (laughs) And, and, And the same Lee Kuan Yew when the Soviet Union broke up traveled the newly formed states, Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan, where he was invited, and he said, you will make many mistakes. We did, too. But don't make one mistake. You don't need to make that of trying for democracy. Just follow our model. You'll be fine, which they have. Let's see if we have
0: some questions. And. I don't know that there are any microphones, are there? So, There is one microphone. That's going to be interesting. Uh, I'm going to... I think probably we'll just try and get people to speak with loud voices, and if it doesn't work, we'll try and get the microphone to you quickly. Uh, we'll, we'll start with the mic. Go on. Hold it to your chin like that. And uh, somebody in the vicinity got a question, so we'll know where to go next. All right, OK. Let's go.
2: Uh, Okay, I think it would be agreed that Australia
1: is in the grip of the extreme centre. I think there's a lot in our community who feel that way. So my question to Tarek is, uh, what is the future for Australia? Can you give us a prognosis for ourselves? Well, I think, you know, it's... This is a question which is difficult to answer because I don't live in this country. The certain patterns, as we've been discussing, are not so different. But I think it would, let's discuss what the future for Australia could be. And I think if Australians began to recognize that they actually live in a different part of the world than the world they try to mimic all the time, it would be a step forward. I mean, mimicry was embedded in Australia, of course, and is tied into the formation of the country under the British Empire. Had that empire not existed in the shape and form it did, this Australia wouldn't exist. We don't know what would, but this certainly wouldn't be the case. And then the way in which the British ran it, the way in which a whole political class in Australia was co-opted to its needs from the beginning. You know, every war in which the European powers were fighting, the British needed Australian troops to go and fight. I mean, why? Why did Australia participate in the bloody First World War, which was pure carnage? And these things, you know, are taken for granted. We have to, but why? Just because of religion or skin color or what? It's irrational otherwise. And now, uh, in the 21st century, the same things go on. And I think sooner or later, this will have to change. I mean, in the interests of Australia itself. A, Australia should be a sovereign country, which Whitlam tried to make it and failed, but he tried to his enormous credit. Uh, B, Australia has to understand who its main neighbors are. Like them or hate them, they're the main neighbors. China, for instance, and not allow Australian soil to be used for crazy and irrational American plans to destabilize the Chinese. And and thirdly, try and develop a foreign policy, which is in the interests of both Australia and the region, and just doesn't follow blindly what the Americans demand. That is what is needed. I mean, whether it will happen or not, I don't know, to be honest. You know, God knows where this century will end up. We're living through a period of transition all over the world. It's very difficult to say with certainty how this transition is going to end, but that is what we're living through.
0: Look, here's another little simple question for you. Um, What what do you see for the the growth and the influence of Islam uh, in the world?
1: I think, uh, you know, the reason Islam has become so important is, you know, I say this and many Muslim friends get angry, but I think this is true. Uh, that the main reason for the importance of Islam is that the largest amounts of unexplored oil lie underneath Muslim lands. Let's be frank. Otherwise, what possible interest could there be in Islam? Iran, oil. Iraq, oil. Saudi Arabia, oil all these tiny little uh, petrol stations, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, etc., which the American and British empires have built, what's their importance? It's not their tribal customs, it's oil, energy. And in my opinion, had these countries been Christian or a variety of early Christianity like the Copts, let's say they'd been that, then Coptic Christianity would have been the enemy against the more modernizing Protestant or Catholic forces or whatever. So these things are created by imperial needs. And so you fight these people in the name of religion and say your religion is A, B, and C. And... In my novels, The Islam Quintet, I cover a period when Islam as a religion and a culture was way ahead of anything else and was the dominant factor in Mediterranean civilization and was a far more advanced religion and culture than Christianity. But memories of that have faded, though, of course, people, you know, historians uh, know this fact well. So religions evolve, develop, and currently... If you want me to be brutally frank, the f- main religious current within Islam is Wahhabism, which is a born-again, <coughs> version of born-again Christianity or whatever you know the other religions have. And this is important because it's the religion of, the, of a minority of the Saudi people, but the religion of the Saudi monarchy. And throughout the Cold War, The Americans used the Saudis and the Wahhabis to go and fight against the communists, against this, against all their enemies of that time using religion, including in Indonesia, by the way, Uh, another of your neighbors. So this is what created money. Oil money created Wahhabism. Wahhabism pumped up sections, usually minorities, of the Muslim community. And you had the birth of radical Islam. And it was then used to defeat the Russians in Afghanistan when the American Secretary of State, uh, Brzezinski, said, go and wage the jihad against these godless people. That is your duty. He actually said this on the Pakistan-Afghan border. Obama himself admitted that the latest monster which they've created, ISIS, the Islamic State, Obama had the honesty to say, let's be honest, he said, had we not gone into Iraq, these people wouldn't have existed. So, you know, this is what happens. The West intervenes, nothing else fights back because nationalism, secular forces have all been destroyed before. And then some monstrous thing jumps up, like the Taliban or like ISIS, which are partially or largely the result of foreign interventions. And then the whole religion is demonized, and we have a wave of Islamophobia Uh, sweeping the world, that there's something inherently wrong. I mean, I'm an atheist and have been one all my life, so I'm quite objective towards all religions. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that quite sits. They don't see it. (laughs) But in, in any event, the notion that Islam is any better or any worse than any other religion, and what has been done or does things in the name of religion which have never been done before, give us a break. What? What about
0: you, right? All right.
2: No,
1: I've finished. Yeah. Staying
2: with oops, this way. Um, staying with Islam and the Middle East. Um, the Free Syria Army, uh, which is fighting the Assad regime, and which has, as you'd agree, a very very radical elements within it, and which. I believe are um, uh, uh, the border between that and the ISIS is quite porous, um, and arms etc. find their way into the Islamic State etc. So it's a little bit confusing that the whole Western world is supporting the Free Syria Army, but um, still fighting ISIS. So how, what, what's the pattern? Is, 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 is America trying to create a deliberate uh, um, confusion while it's going down, or, or, or what, what is it? Well, I
1: mean, it's fairly straightforward. that The basic aim of the US is to extend their hegemony in this world, and the best way to do it is to break up the states who were once independent and sovereign, regardless of their regimes. Uh, they prefer small states because they are easier to control and manipulate, so Iraq, as we knew it, is over dead gone uh, it 's effectively divided, and sooner or later these divisions will be recognized. The Saudis will have a big influence in Sunni Iraq. the Iranians will be made into a gigantic power in the region because of the crazed American intervention in Iraq will control southern Iraq. the Kurds are effectively Uh, an Israeli-American protectorate in northern Iraq. So that's Iraq gone, and now the same thing is being done to Syria. And they don't particularly care how it's done, as long as it's done. The Nusra Front, which is the rival to ISIS, is effectively run by al-Qaeda. So the big clash in Syria is between ISIS and al-Qaeda for who can take the country. Uh, and they're fighting each other, uh, as well as fighting the Assad regime. And most people in the Western world are basically ignorant. They don't know what's going on. They sleepwalk from one disaster created by their governments to another. And many of them just don't care.
0: And speaking of potential disasters, then there's your country, Pakistan, which, uh, which America increasingly talks about with a note of concern in its voice.
1: Um, what's going to happen there? Well, you know, Pakistan, uh, I am so tired of talking about it, but uh, sort of wrote three books on Pakistan, which laid it out for them, and unfortunately, every mistake I warned against they've committed. So uh, what's happening in that country is you have two powers in the land. One is the army, which always intervenes when it feels it has to, uh, backed by the U.S. nine times out of ten. And then but, but they also be, with a finger in the Taliban camp. Sorry, but
0: also with a finger in the Taliban
1: camp.: Also with a finger in the Taliban camp for the following reasons, that the Pakistani military says, once the Americans pull out, which of course they might never do, but there's Chinese pressure there too that, oh, who is going to run Afghanistan? The disparate forces of the Northern Alliance can't do it, so it'll have to be the Taliban, so they've spruced it up a bit, shorter beards, Armani suits. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> uh, quite a quite a good way to move. and uh, you know you you see some of these guys dressed like any Western politician. Uh, which appeases people saying, oh God, they're like us, yeah, you know. Um, And so that is what is going on. I mean, I have no doubt that the Taliban will be in some shape or form in power again in Afghanistan despite this long war, which has actually strengthened them because it's been a disgraceful uh, episode in Western history and it's now destabilized Pakistan. And how this destabilization will end I mean, the obvious way is to push through massive social reforms, but neoliberal uh, politicians, part of this neoliberal world, don't do that. So you have a huge population now approaching 200 million. L- bulk of people are not educated. No health services. It's amazing how patient they've been. And the bulk of Pakistanis have not been attracted to jihadi groups. Had they been, it would have the game would have been over. But they haven't been, you know. They, they're people like anyone else, but living in awful conditions, hating their politicians for good reason because they're totally corrupt, uh, and just not knowing where they're going to go to. Uh, one more question.
0: Um, we we'll take the oh, you got the microphone, sure. and then we'll Thanks. we'll try and squeeze that one in the back. But. Okay. Looking at uh, South America and Where ca- are you? Are you? here, looking at South America and casting around desperately for reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> you, you, write, you write passionately about Venezuela and Bolivia, Ecuador. So, what are the lessons that a country like Australia could learn from those places?
1: Well, I mean, it's a very different situation, you know, uh, in South America than it is here. Uh, but the South Americans have decided to assert their sovereignty first. That's one lesson Australia could learn, that it's much better being a totally independent country uh, than following or hanging on to the coattails of the imperial power. So that's the one important thing that the South Americans have taught us. And secondly, which everyone can learn from, it's, it's what I said before, that to use part of the income and the revenue of the state to deal with the needs of a majority of your population, and not to create a huge hierarchical structure within the population itself. This used to be agreed by many people after the Second World War, but has now gone out of fashion. The fact that the South Americans have done it, is what explains when the governments are elected and re-elected time and time again, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of the privately owned media wages vicious campaigns against them. I mean, the campaigns waged by the private media and CNN in Venezuela, where, you know, one uh, program used to denounce the Chavistas as monkeys, caricature them because they were dark-skinned, belonging to the poorer classes of the country. Rarely have I seen a race divide as strong as in uh, in Venezuela. People don't never think about it because they think everyone's the same, but they aren't. And the Creoles they're really viciously uh, uh, racist, And for the first time, that is beginning to change in terms of jobs, employment, et cetera. But they waged vicious campaigns, so much so that there was an event at the American embassy in Caracas where Chavez was a real monkey was brought in and dressed like Chavez, at which point the American Secretary of State, a Republican, Colin Powell, Uh, you know, black general said this is impossible. What the hell are we doing? What is going on? And, you know, the uh, ambassador was reprimanded. But this is sort of quite common stuff that goes on. In Bolivia, where 80% of the population are indigenous, you've had a a Creole elite ruling the country. So you have, for the first time, Evo Morales elected by the people. And... uh, they're generally happy. I'm not saying every single problem has been solved, but you have governments which people trust, and that does make a change.
0: Okay, very quickly. We'll try and keep the question and the answer short. We're close to time. Thanks. Um, You spoke about our leaders being imbeciles, and I'm interested whether you think that perhaps they were in the past, but given our current climate of social media, that perhaps we're able to pick apart... Uh, our leaders a little bit more easily, and from that, is it possible to have strong long-term leadership in this culture of social media in our in our capitalist society?
1: Get the question. Uh, I am sorry, I didn't quite get your question. Where are you? I, oh, okay. Thank you.
2: Um, that, social, our, social that our that our leaders perhaps are, are being picked apart by
0: social media, and in that, is it possible to have strong long-term leadership in our uh, in our capitalist society? given the the climate of social media?
1: Well, I think, you know, that there are many uh, things that have changed with the internet, the way we live, the way we communicate, uh, the way we, young people talk to each other. It's a very powerful instrument, and I'm totally for it, by the way. I mean, for most of it. I sometimes think if only we'd had this in the 60s. God, what could we have done? You know, when we felt very deprived on many say. a level. Uh, <clears throat> but in any case, I think that some of the best websites which you see, that lots of people now have stopped reading newspapers. As you probably know, I'm, I presume it's no different in, in Australia. Uh, and the reason they've stopped reading them is, is that a lot of it. the stuff published in them is trash. And one reason that this trash is globalized is because of a very well-known Australian export called Murdoch. And, uh, uh, you know, so he owns papers all over the world and television stations, etc. and they operate in the same way. I think the only of Murdoch's papers, over 200 of them globally, which opposed the Iraq war, was a very small one in Tasmania. What happened to that editor, I don't know. <laughs> <coughs> but so... And increasingly, public television is like that too. Public television now in many countries, and the BBC particularly has been punished by government after government, is too scared to do anything. They're fearful that they'll be privatized, but you know, then in order to stop that, they start behaving like the private networks. And that then deprives people of an institution which they used to trust. So the alternative, essentially, are social networks, websites. In France, you have an investigative daily newspaper just published online called Media Part, which has acquired a huge circulation because they go for the politicians, but with a lot of research. Six or seven of their top journalists were hired from good journalists, were hired from the mainstream print media. They're very good investigative journalists, and this has risen and risen and risen. Uh, same in parts of the United States, actually where you have uh, very strong and powerful social networks which provide information and which mobilize support. I mean, during the Occupy movements in the state, the way of communication was uh, uh, via social networks and, and phones, you know, cell phones. And during the Arab Spring, the guy who owned Vodafone in Egypt was told to just stop everything so people couldn't communicate and I was asking some of the kids involved in that, I said well what did you do then? They said we did what used to be done in the past, we ran round neighbourhoods knocking on doors and saying one o'clock today everyone in Tahrir.' so they couldn't stop us but they did try.
0: Okay, we, we're going to have to end it there because we're out of time but I think I think I can say we seem to have ended on an almost positive note. <laughs> Could you please take Terry Gully? I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Bay Writers' Festival 2015. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Bay Writers' Festival on our website, byronbaywritersfestival.com.au and our iTunes.